Let's pray together as we begin. Receive the glory, Lord. Cause our hearts to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Psalm 57. Friends, how does God create a steadfast people? How does God start the engine of steadfastness in his people? I'm finding that many Christians want to be known as loving. Everyone wants to be a loving person, right? Often at the expense of truth. We want to be gracious, we want to be kind, but what about steadiness? What about gospel steadfastness, immovability? Is this something that you want to be known as? If you think in your life of those people who were the most influential in your life, I bet it was someone who was always there when you needed them. Someone who is steady. While I do believe Christians want this, how do we become this? Is this something that you value? Is it something that God values? It's an admirable trait, and a life that remains steadfast under trial is something that is rarely seen. A life that knows that we can look to Christ as the author and the finisher of our faith. When life looks unsure, they don't jump off the train. They don't pull the cord. They stick it out. They are steadfast. Something so difficult to find, but something we do want. This steadfastness is shown us in the lives of men and women who've lived before us. Think for a moment of Thomas Manton. Thomas Manton was a Puritan. And this man was a man that exemplified steadiness, steadfastness. When he was forced to make a decision between recanting what he believed in the salvation of Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, or being imprisoned for what he believed, he chose to hold what the Bible said, and was cast out in the great ejection of 1662. And though it was illegal to be outspoken as a Protestant Christian, he continued to preach in his hometown until he was imprisoned for preaching. And his steadfastness is shown when he was in prison because he gained so much of the guards' trusts in the prison that when the guards would leave, they would leave the keys to Manton. Christian steadiness. Think of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. This biblical steadfastness is shown us in the lives of these two men who, though they were imprisoned for continuing to believe in this grace alone that saves, and they did not deny it, went to be tied to a stake and burned for it. Before they were tied to the stake, Ridley 
said to Latimer, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the fire or else strengthen us to abide it. As the bundle of sticks caught fire beneath them, Latimer had his turn. Raising his voice so Ridley could hear, he cried, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. Helen Sturkey, when she was about to watch her husband hanged before her eyes, and later she herself would be drowned in a river. She said to her husband, Husband, be glad. For we have lived together many joyful days, and this day in which we must die, we ought to esteem the most joyful of all, because we shall have joy forever. Therefore I will not bid you good night, for we shall shortly meet in the kingdom of heaven. Think for a moment of Paul when he was in prison. This godly steadfastness is displayed when Paul was sitting in a damp, dark prison and has such steadiness of spirit to write the words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Friends, how do we get that? How do we get to the point where we can sit in the darkness of our lives, looking at the clouds over our heads, and say to ourselves, God is there, he is good, and he is steady, and I will cling to him. If you look at the beginning of this passage, before verse 1, you'll see the heading there that says, To the choir master, in Psalm 57. To the choir master, According to do not destroy, a victim of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. There are two occasions in scripture where David does this. And I do believe that it is the first time David flees from Saul. And you can read about this more in 1 Samuel 22 in the surrounding context there. The next time David is in the cave or in a cave is in 1 Samuel 24. So friends, the context is this, that David is in the cave and he has fled from the hands of Saul and he either writes this while in the cave or at a later time and David is literally seeking refuge from the hand of Saul in this cave. This is what we read about today. Psalm 57, starting in verse 1. Read with me. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. 
Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Friends, the statement that I want to pull out of this and I pray that we come away with is this. Our steadfastness in the refuge that God provides is an implication of gospel potency in our hearts. Our steadfastness in the refuge that God provides is an implication of gospel potency in our hearts. At the beginning, you'll notice that there are two places in this psalm that are repeated twice in a row. You see in verse 1, The passage says, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. And the next statement like this is in verse 7 where it says, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. These two places in the psalm are what I would like to call hinges. It's where the psalm turns. So the question that we must ask in reading this text is this. How does David get from pleading to God for mercy in verse 1 to declaring his steadfastness to the Lord in verse 7? How does David get there? What happens between there that causes David's heart to be renewed and his commitment to be founded? So verse 3 I would like to point out is a brief synopsis of verse 4 through 11. So to put it another way, verses 4 through 11 is how verse 3 unfolds. So the first thing is this. David asks God for mercy. David asks God for mercy in verse 1 through 3. Be merciful to me. O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. This is an act of kindness toward God, uh, toward David from God, to save David from destruction. Here is David saying, don't give me what I deserve, but give me what I don't. Don't execute your justice, but extend your mercy. Since David asks for mercy, we know that God is seeking something he knows God must extend to him. And this is mercy for deliverance. I say must extend to him because it is not something that David can find anywhere else. He knows that deliverance will only come if God gives it. Since David asks for mercy, we know that he's seeking mercy. Something that only God can do 
and it says that he will wait until the storms of destruction pass by. Now, what is this destruction that's coming? Well, for David, it's Saul. Think as Saul's in this cave, Saul isn't out there to check on David. He isn't there to teach David a lesson. He isn't there to beat David up. He is out to kill David. He is out to to end David's life. And David is in this cave waiting it out, being unsure. At this time, David did not have all the backing of political power. He was a man on the run. And David knew Saul had all the power. Talk about anxiety. We see quickly that what is first in David's mind, have mercy, Lord. So how does David go about handling this? The scripture says, in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. And David pleads for God's unmerited favor. But then we see David do something. He seeks refuge. Does God literally erect walls around David? Well, of course not. Since he is in a cave, we know that he has done what he can to find literal refuge. But he understands that salvation is ultimately God's to give. Ultimately, salvation is up to God. He knows God is sovereign and that he must be merciful and give David what he cannot merit, what he cannot earn. David knows that finding refuge doesn't always mean making an escape. Think for a moment. David knows the refuge he needs is not made by a wall he could erect. And the answer is not put on the parachute and bail. Brothers and sisters, sometimes it looks like you're going down with the plane. And the only salvation that will work is the Lord's deliverance. Yet we try to concoct different ways we could deliver ourselves and find ways to be all right with the situation. But in the end, we rob God of the glory he deserves. Seeking God's glory, not our own, sometimes means we are supposed to sit still when the plane is going down. When we see the ground getting closer, when, when David knows Saul is getting closer, when David knows that his eternity, his life is not in his hands, he sits still. It's easy to bail when tragedy comes. The hard thing is to sit still. Now, I'm not saying be stupid. I'm saying trust God. It is one thing to say, use your brain. It goes too far when it goes to the extent of not trusting God. Verse 2, we see that David cries out to the one who gives salvation, not seeking deliverance by others' hands or his own, but the Lord. Where do you go when you're seeking deliverance? 
And what does where you go reveal about your heart? What you value? What you glorify? What you look to as the deliverer of your soul? Unbelief in God's providence? Does it reveal idolatry in your heart? Does waiting on God's deliverance produce assurance or impatience on your part? For me, it's often the latter. I struggle with impatience. I don't like waiting on the Lord to move and for me to sit and wait for him to move. Friends, it might be an ailment of some kind that you could be going through right now. It might be an unbelieving spouse It might be a quarrelsome or unbelieving child that you continue to pray will show fruits of repentance but isn't. A family member who has passed away. Maybe your relationship with your spouse has entered into a a rough patch. Maybe it's loneliness. In what ways are you attempted to be done and pull the cord, jump out of the plane and be over it or to take matters into our own hands while God is prompting you to wait and to trust him is there a battle going on in your mind right now that you know you should trust him and people are telling you to wait on him but you can't help but be tempted the other way and you just want to do what you want to do, and you continue to push that way and push that way until you feel like you're going to knock the wall down and people are just going to be okay with it. Friends, listen to the Lord. Listen to people who are telling you to wait. Go read the commands in Scripture for God telling you to wait. Go read Psalm 46.10. Wait on the Lord. Trust in His goodness. Trust that He has a plan and that He has a purpose for you. All these questions lead us to that idea, that idea of purpose. I've heard someone say, everyone has a purpose. Mine could be making a good living or my family or loving my family, while others could have a different purpose. It could be something else for someone else. Well, friends, I want to attack that idea. We all have the same purpose. Westminster Confession put it this way, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We all have the same purpose. Most just don't know God has made them with a purpose. It comes down to this. Does God exist for us or do we exist for him? Or does, do we exist for him? Yes. Answering that question, getting it right, and believing it is the first contributor to how our souls find refuge in Christ. What does Matthew 6.33 say? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is coming on the heels of a passage where Jesus deals with anxiety over daily needs. How fitting. See, David's purposes might not be fulfilled, but the Lord's purposes will be fulfilled. 
So the question is this, are yours in line with his? Do what you want, does what you want line up with what he wants? And if they don't, friends, you will be consistently disappointed. Do you agree with him? Verse 3 reads this way. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. This verse is the outflow of God's purpose. If you notice back in verse 2, it says, I cry to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. His purpose for me. This verse 3 is an outflow of how God is fulfilling his purposes in David. Not David's purposes. God is carrying through his will in David's life. This isn't David fulfilling his own desires. This is God fulfilling his own desires. And and David desires being in line to be in line with God's will. See here, this is what we see. We see that David's will is aligning with the Lord's. And so what David wants is what God wants. Three things that God will do on David's behalf. The passage shows us that he will send from heaven and save me. In verse 3, the beginning statement. The second one is that he will put to shame him who tramples on me. But notice out beside this second statement, it has this Hebrew word, and the word is selah. Now that word is, is a word that means to pause. It's a word of division. It means that after you read this, take a moment. Think about it. Ponder over it. And then the third one is that God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Now immediately after I read this, friends, I don't know about you, but immediately after reading a text that is so sure, that David is so sure that this is going to happen, I immediately start asking the question, David, how do you have such assurance that God will do these things? How do you have such assurance? Remember, at this point, David was not yet king. He was a man on the run. But in 1 Samuel 16, David was anointed to be king. Right? Samuel goes to his father's house, and all the sons pass in front of his father. And what happens? Not this one. Not that one. God says, nope, it's not that one. It's not that one. Well, they say, oh, there's none left. And David's out in the field, and they call David in, and he's a little guy. He's the the runt of the family. And God says, this is the one. Anoint him. And so David knows this, friends. He knows that either God will help him get through this, or God will pull off some miracle to anoint it, to see him become king. Because God said it would happen. So he knew that God would do it at at some point, and there were promises that God had made to him that were not yet fulfilled. So he has to trust in God's not yet fulfilled plan. He has to trust in the plan that God hasn't written on a page. He has to trust in something that God has said in the past and trust it for the future. 
Beloved, David is trusting a word that hasn't been fulfilled. But here we see this unwavering trust in the Lord's plans because these promises he has made to David are worth trusting. Friends, here's the difference. We must trust a word that has been fulfilled. We must trust a word that's finished. See, what happened at Calvary, what happened at the cross, all those things, friends, it's done. It's been done for 2,000 years. And here we have it on the pages of Scripture. But here's the thing. Do you trust it? Do you go back? Do you look at it? Do you trust it? Do you remember it? What is one of the things that as the Israelites were getting the law, as they were receiving the law from God, from Moses, God says, remember this. Put it on your doorposts. Remember this. And teach it to your children. What does God, or what does David need saving from? Is the next thing. So verses 4 through 6 show us what David needs saving from. He says in verse 4, My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. The they here is the children of man. And we know that when verse 6 connects with verse 4, he says that, the children of man whose teeth are spears, and he explains who they are. And now in verse 6, we see what they do. Notice both of these ways that the children of man attack David is with their mouths. You see that there? They attack David with their mouths. James 3, 1 through 12 says this. You know the passage. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to also bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pirate directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and, and of reptile, sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not be so. 
Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Friends, this text is building something. It's offering a strong warning to those who curse and build up. David, who do both of those at once... David moves from there to exalting how God above the heavens and desiring for his glory to be over all the earth. Now, at first glance, this might appear like a little bit of a sidetrack, but friends, notice that David is prioritizing his purpose. He's not ignoring what he's talking about. It's not like he has a break in between verse 4 and 6. He is reorienting his purpose. Here's the purpose That God will be glorified. That God will be exalted. Now there are two ways. He prays that the Lord will be exalted vertically and horizontally. The text says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is a reorientation of David's purpose. This is him saying what he said back in verse 3. I want what you want. I want to do what you do. I want to live in the way that you have ordained me to live. I want to live in obedience to you. Now as David moves on, we come to verse 6. What do these children of man do? They are the ones who dig a pit for David. Notice the evil action. They set a net for his steps. Notice David's response. My soul was bowed down. The second or the third thing is the evil action that they did the second time. Dug a pit in my way. But how? what is the next response? They have fallen into it themselves. Notice at the end of verse 6 is that a word again. Selah. That means that there's another pause, another division. Where where was the last statement that this happened? In verse 3. The second statement in verse 3. Now how does God put to shame those who trample on David? The pit that the evil dug for the righteous, they fell into themselves. Now notice here, brothers and sisters, notice this. God is saying here that he allows wickedness to go, but then they fall in it themselves. Beloved, if there is a struggle going on in your life, I pray we can come alongside you, bear your burdens with you, but there is also a warning here. Beware to those who cause those burdens. Beware to those who cause burdens. Brothers and sisters, hear me. The tongue is not just a flame set a for- setting a forest ablaze. It is also a shovel that, shovel that digs pits for the righteous. God hates it. Gossip, slander, it tears the bride of Christ apart at the seams. Be careful how you use your tongue. Because you will fall in the pit you dug. 
Build each other up. Do not tear each other down. Matthew 18.5 says, Whoever receives one such little child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and drowned in the depth of the sea. As you keep reading, you find that these little ones that Jesus is talking about are the beloved church of God. We're talking about Christians here, believers. It's speaking about believers stumbling at the hand of evil men causing it. This moment, friends, this moment is a moment for meditation. That's why the word is there. This is a moment that we should pause and contemplate the salvation of God. And there's a reason why it connects verse 6 to verse 3. It's because we should begin meditating on this. We should be contemplating how God saves his people. What we see here is at the end of verse 6, God explains his recipe, friends. God's own home-cooked recipe of salvation. We see what I would like to call the irony of salvation. The irony of salvation. Now, an irony is an outcome of events contrary to what was or might have been expected. Now, notice. Think about the brothers. Think about this. This is where the Lord takes evil devices developed by evil men and uses them for good. He flips them and their evil devices on their heads and saves his people as a result. He takes what was evil, what was aroused and brought to fruition by evil men and causes it for good for those whom he loves. How does God cause the, out, the outcome of events to be contrary to what was going to happen or what might have been? This is how God saves his people. Now feel the weight of this, friends. God is taking destruction and making salvation. Taking darkness and making light. Taking death and making life. Making the slanderer and the wickedness that comes out drip with honey out of our mouths, making those who speak slander hopefully speak with honey words. It's taking rebels and making children. It's taking orphans and inviting them to his table. It's Jesus standing before the grave with Mary and Martha and crying, Lazarus, come out. Think about how this happens in the scriptures. You look at Genesis 37, verse 23 through 24. And you look at it, and it says that Joseph's brothers threw him into a literal pit, sold him into slavery. He goes to Egypt, becomes a slave in Potiphar's house. After going to prison and interpreting the Pharaoh's dream, he is raised to power. And at the end, we find Joseph's words, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Exodus 1, verse 20. In Exodus, we find another example of this. Pharaoh began to dread the people of Israel because they were growing in number and didn't want Israel to conquer them. He didn't want them to turn. 
So Pharaoh commanded the midwives to kill all the males at birth, but because these women feared the Lord, they didn't do it. So Pharaoh, in order to complete his plan, even though the midwives didn't obey, said, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now fast forward in your minds to Exodus 14, where the Israelites have gone out of Egypt. They're at the Red Sea with the Egyptians at their backs. God provides a way across the sea by splitting it down the middle, and they walk across on dry ground, and the Egyptians come in after them. And as the Israelites come out on the other side, they see God's salvation Exodus verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 26 through 31. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned, covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed him, them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of God, the people of Israel, walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day. From the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared God and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Friends, the Egyptians cast God's children into the Nile. God buries them in the ocean. Think about that. Think of God's salvation. God causes the outcome to be contrary to what was expected. He saves his people no matter the odds stacked against him. He does it anyways. And he receives all the glory due. Think about Judges. Judges chapter 6 verse uh, chapter 6 through 8. We see the story of Gideon where God takes the lowest man, the smallest army and delivers his people. Ruth, also, we see this in the story where God redeems a widowed Moabite woman by the hands of Boaz and adopts her into the family that would one day bring about David the king who wrote this song. In Acts 9, this Pharisee of Pharisees, Saul, on his way to Damascus to arrest the Christians there, and Jesus knocks him down, saves his sorry soul, and through this man brings salvation to the Gentiles. Think of our condition. Think of us, that we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. Our good works were as filthy rags. We were not righteous. We did not understand. We did not seek God. We were worthless. Our throats were an open grave. There was no fear of God before our eyes. We were servants who owed his master 10,000 talents, the impossible debt. We were by nature children of wrath. The odds were stacked against our condition. And it was not just hard but impossible for us to appear guiltless, sinless, perfect, righteous in God's sight. 
but we know that passage from Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus became this curse, bore the wrath of God, accomplished what we couldn't accomplish. Jesus taking our sin, our punishment, and died. And as he died, he said, it is finished. It's done. But then God raised his son on the third day and highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It reminds me of one of my favorite hymns. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. The irony of salvation is that though we, like a freight train headed in one direction towards hell, God flipped it. God flipped the script. And he changed our direction doing what we could never do, making possible what was impossible and accomplishing his eternal work of redemption. So brothers and sisters, here's the, the question. How does God create a steadfast people? Go back up to verse 1 with me in Psalms. Psalm 57, verse 1. It says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Did you notice the statement at the end of that verse? Till the storms of destruction pass by. When was another time the people of God waited for destruction to pass? What did God give his people as a refuge? The blood. The blood of the lamb. Remember that occasion when God said, take the blood, wipe it on your doorpost, and wait till the angel of destruction passes by. The blood saved. Brothers and sisters, here's the truth. We should never get over the blood. We should never get over the blood of the Lamb. 
the moment that God brought light to our eyes, illumination to our hearts, the gospel should drive us to seek him, to worship him, to love him. When our minds feel dull, the gospel is where we go to be sharpened. When our hearts feel cold, the gospel is where we go to be warmed. When our soul is having a cloudy day, the gospel is the ray of sunshine that breaks through and warms our skin. The gospel is the furnace where our stony hearts are melted like wax into the image of God's Son. When God calls someone to himself, he does not leave them unchanged, he saves their souls sets them in a new direction, and gives them energy to go because that's the Spirit of God. And we go. He throws coal in the furnace, and here it goes. But is David recalling the gospel? Jesus had not come yet. Beloved, the thing is this. Just because Jesus did not did not come yet, doesn't mean that God didn't save David in the same way that he has saved or that he will save. Look back at verse 3 with me. The passage says God will do three things. It says God will send from heaven and save him. Friends, John 1.14 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let me quote the most quoted verse in the whole world, probably. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God will send from heaven and save him. The second thing it says is God will put to shame him who tramples on me. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through 58 says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then we shall come what shall come to pass is the saying death is swallowed up in victory death where is your sting oh death where is your victory but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The third thing that verse 3 says is that God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. We see that God, that David was placing his hope in the same God who saves as we, or as he has always saved. David was in awe of God's salvation. 
David having his eyes fixed on salvation, the salvation that God will bring him. He proclaims, verse 7 through 10. Verse 7 says, My heart is steadfast. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you, to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. How does David respond to salvation? David responds with worship. David's heart is steadfast. David sings and makes melody to the Lord. David says three times, This word literally means the word awake. He says the word three times in this passage. It it means to be aroused, to be stirred, to be awakened. David is saying, wake up. Jesus has saved you, friends. David is saying, wake up, David. Wake up, world. Wake up, Israel. God will save us. He first says, awake my glory. This is David speaking about himself. He's saying, David, wake up. He says, awake, O harp and lyre. This is David saying, get the guitar tuned. Clear your throat, whatever you need to do, because we're about to wake the county with our praise to God. I will awake the dawn is the third one. Is, this is David saying we are going to sing so loud and so long that we will usher in the dawn. Now why does he answer in this way? We see that David's been saved, that he is going to be saved but he answers in this way because verse 10 says for your steadfast love is great to the heavens. He says, your faithfulness to the clouds. Beloved, how do we respond to salvation? The thermometer on your souls, the worship might be that thermometer of how salvation affects us. Can we read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 through 14 with no emotion at all? Do we wake up in the morning without a yearning for a drink of the word? Do the songs we sing for our, of our risen Savior usher your heart to worship? Friends, mine often doesn't. Remember, remember what I said at the beginning of this sermon. Our steadfastness in the refuge God provides is an implication of gospel potency in our hearts. 
So I'm not asking the question, how do we respond? How should we respond? When Peter preached at Pentecost, Acts 2, verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Friends, this this is called gospel implication. When we come to the gospel, when we hear the truth, when we see God's word, God's salvation come to life, it must urge our hearts. It must push us to the point where we say, God, what shall I do? How must I then live in light of the gospel? Friends, notice in this passage how David How David is in grief. He's praying for the Lord to be merciful. That the Lord would give him mercy. That the Lord would save him. And then he says the Lord will do these things. Remember Gethsemane. When Jesus was was praying to his father, his heavenly father. And he says, not my will, but yours be done. David is setting a great example here of that. Of a heart that is so consumed by God's glory. So fixed on the salvation that God gives. That we cannot help but follow him. It just happens. It becomes such an itch in our souls that we have to scratch it every single day. John Calvin, when he would preach, he would often, every now and then, would pop blood vessels he preach. Beloved, your satisfaction, your contentment will not be found in anything this world offers. It is not found in a big paycheck. It is not found in power or prestige or position. Our endless thirst for satisfaction will not be quenched by a new job. Even if we've had 20 jobs in the past year or if we've had The same job for the past 20 years. Having financial stability is not a bad thing. In fact, it's good. But be careful. Idolatry often masquerades as financial stability. Be careful. When the world looks on, sees our fickleness in the world, looking for everything that they look for. We do the same thing they do. They could say they're just like us. But when tragedy comes, or the job you're tired of, or the child who won't eat his lunch for the 50th time, is the gospel potent enough to give us heavenly grit and be steadfast and stick Because, brothers and sisters, we know that it does not depend on the work I do or you do, but on the work that's been done. Some of you might need to do something practical. Brothers and sisters, stop hanging out with the people you hang out with. Put yourself around people who preach the gospel to you. The hope of a preacher is that the whole church becomes many preachers. And I mean that very specifically because, friends, I don't need to hear the gospel just every Sunday. I need to hear it every day of the week. And I, don't, and I know reading scripture, that is the waterfall that 
that fills my soul, but I need others pouring into me. This will bring the gospel to light in our lives. Stop hanging out with them. Start hanging out with people who love Jesus. What you'll find is this. When your understanding of the gospel grows, your worship and your steadiness will grow as well. And if it's not, press in. Don't just stop. And don't think it's not working. God might just be letting you sit for a while and brood. We can come, we can ask the same question we've been asking the whole sermon. How does God create a steadfast people? Stephen Lawson said it best when he said something to the effect of this. Pearls don't float, so stop hydroplaning. Pearls don't float, stop hydroplaning. In order to get the pearls, you got to dive deep. In order to understand the scriptures, take some time and just look at it. Pour into others' lives. Let them pour into you and let time do its work. Be patient. Trust the Lord. God creates a steadfast people, an immovable people, when they stop running to the world and start running to the God of the gospel as their refuge. Matt Boswell wrote a song. It's been one of my favorite songs. It's actually the most played song on my Spotify past year. The third verse of this song says this. Should my life be torn from me, every worldly pleasure, when all I possess is grief, God be then my treasure. Be my vision in the night, be my hope and refuge, till my faith is turned to sight. Lord, my heart will praise you. Let's pray together. Lord, we've seen an example in your word of the man David and how you have used David in writing your word, how you filled him, how you filled him with your spirit and allowed him to be the one who communicated your word to us. Lord, and as we read him, we see his example, we see the mercy that he begged for, and we see the salvation, the steadiness that he sought Lord, may we not just be people fixed on your salvation, but may we be people who yearn for each other and for you. May we be a people who are alive in our spirits because you have given life. Let us not dwell in the past. Let us not dwell in the death that we once lived in. But, oh, Lord, help us to be what you've called us to be, to live worthy of the calling. In Jesus' name, amen.